So who has heard of the 100-second hang challenge? Anybody? Ah, a couple people. That's great. So if you're, I mean, the beach probably seems a far, a, a long way off in, in multiple ways. Um, I think this kind of thing happens typically at a place like the beach in a boardwalk. But there's such a thing as the 100-second challenge. You get 100 bucks if you can hang on a chin-up bar for 100 seconds. You think you could do it? Um, so I think it originated as like a carnival game and the bar moves, which makes it a lot harder, right? Um, people are laughing, yes. Um, so most people can't do that because you slip off very easily. But it's hard enough even if the bar is stationary, okay? So um, the people who do this at the carnival or elsewhere, unless they set up outside of a climbing gym, are pretty much going to make out pretty well, okay? So usually it's like, hey, 10 bucks, see if you can do it, and you win 100 bucks. And for instance, some guys like tried this carnival thing that I watched this video. Um, and, you know, it was so hard for anybody that when they set it outside of a, a university, so lots of young, fit people in their late teens and early 20s, and the people that tried are probably the people that think they can actually pull it off. And 100 college students tried. How many do you think made it? Three. But that was only after they gave them chalk for their hands. Okay? So net win to the guys that set up the thing on campus there. So it's a grip strength test, right? Everybody with me here? Okay. So any, anyone here interested in their grip strength? I'm interested in my grip strength. Um, you could be interested in your grip strength because you've got arthritis and you're having trouble opening jars or grabbing common items and carrying them through the house from one place to another. Obviously, grip strength is really important, right? It's easy to take for granted or to overlook until you don't have it. Or you could have, you know, like a sport or exercise related interest in grip strength. If you're a rock climber, you need some serious strength in your fingers. Have you ever seen rock climbers that can do pull-ups just with their fingers, like two-finger, well, four-finger? Some of them can do two-finger pull-ups. Okay, it's nuts. But again, you've got to be able to hang on. Holding on can mean making it or falling on a particular route. Okay, so actually, according to Dr. Peter Atia, if any of you have ever heard of this guy, um, all of us should be concerned about our grip strength. Okay, here's what he, he said I, not long ago. I heard him say something like this. Um, not enough can be said about the importance of grip strength as you age. It's one of the strongest physical associations with longer life. In part, this association reflects the fact that grip strength serves as a great proxy for overall body strength and muscle mass, as gripping involves not only the muscles of the hand, but also those of the arms and shoulder. In fact, grip strength is commonly used as a metric for defining sarcopenia. You all know what that is, right? Age-related muscle loss. Grip strength is a very functional form of strength. Given our reliance on our hands for countless everyday tasks, having a strong grip has an outsized impact on your quality of life. So much of your upper body is mediated through your hands. If your grip is weak, everything upstream of that is weak, which can often lead to injury. Okay, see why we should all be interested in grip strength? 
Has anyone ever tried to improve their grip strength? Anybody have some of those squeezy things, you know, sitting in a bin collecting dust at your house? You know, those will do it. Farmers carries, get some kettlebells and do this. And how, how long can you hold on to those heavy things until they want to slip out? Hanging from a bar can help. So obviously our grip, and I'm, I'm going to move to the spiritual here, okay? You saw it coming, I know. Um, our grip can weaken. And we all need spiritual grip strength. So regardless of what you think about physical grip strength, our passage is about spiritual grip strength. And the Lord wants to strengthen our spiritual grip strength so that we can persevere in faith until we finish the race. We need to hold fast. Thankfully, he holds us fast. But that's not in contradiction to us holding fast. It's actually him holding us fast, which enables us to grow in strength to hold on to him. Him holding us fast doesn't mean we just, eh, doesn't matter what I do. It enables us to run the race that's set before us, to cling and hold fast to our confession. So um, we're doing this series through Advent or for Advent. Um, five glimpses of the glory of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. And so we've looked at chapter one, a couple passages in chapter two, and this morning we're going to look at chapter four, verses 14 to 16. So that passage that Dave read is a good complement to the passage we are going to study. So if you're not there yet, turn in the Bible to Hebrews chapter 4, and we are going to look at verses 14 to 16. So as you're turning there, just a little bit of context, because we're kind of just jumping right in the middle of a line of thought here. Why do we need to hold fast? Why do we need spiritual grip strength? Well, we need to make it all the way home. We need to make it, in the language of Hebrews 4, to the rest, the eternal rest that's one way the Bible talks about heaven, okay? So look at Hebrews 4, 1 to 2. This is the beginning of the chapter we're going to look at. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. Hold on, I'll explain that in a second. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So he just got done talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. They had this amazing deliverance out of Egypt. But then they got in the wilderness and they looked back with wistfulness as if the house of slavery was better without God than with God in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. So they actually fell in the wilderness. They fell away. And they died in the wilderness. So he's saying this to those he's writing to, the Hebrews, Jewish Christians, who are drifting, wandering. He says, like, warning, warning, don't drift. Do you see what happened to them? They had the promise of entering into the promised land, but they actually didn't hold fast. They didn't trust God. So that should put some holy fear, not 
terror, but the point is it's kind of like a splash of cold water on the face. Like this life matters. Like you really need to persevere. You really need to trust Jesus. So anybody here not want to make it to the eternal rest? If you want to make it to the eternal rest, if that promise still remains, like chapter four, verses one and two, and if it's easy to drift and wander, and if some have drifted and wandered, if any of us here or are in that spot right now, we're wandering, we're drifting spiritually. And as you read down through chapter four, if the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword and it exposes what's really going at the heart level, like in other words, it's not like you're gonna pull a fast one on God. He sees everything. And we're gonna stand before him like, whoa, 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 whoa. If all of that is true, if we're gonna give an account, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, if all of that is true, then how would you finish that sentence? How would you expect that sentence to be finished? If all of that's true, here's how God finishes that sentence. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. And it's really encouraging. So let's read it together. If all of that's true, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need quick quote here by P.T. O'Brien that I think says it well. The more desperate their situation is before the all-seeing eye of God, the more wonderful is his provision for their needs. So if you're in danger of drifting, if there's nowhere to run and hide and you're going to have to give an account, that can be a pretty scary, desperate spot to be in. And so it's that much sweeter when you fear falling away, when you feel how weak you are and how prone to wander, it's so wonderful and sweet to hear of the resources that the Lord wants to give to us to meet our needs. Right? You guys, everybody with me here? You see the kind of context? All right. So we're going to look at Verses 14 to 16 here. Five points. First point, we have a great high priest. So listen for what we have. It's actually an important theme in the book of Hebrews. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So if you're a Christian, if you have recognized and repented of your sin, you can't atone for your sin. You can't, you know, work your way into God's good graces. You're guilty. You can't pay the debt of your sin. But Jesus came to do it. So if you recognize that, you turn away from trying to run your own life and you turn to Jesus, empty hands of faith, and say, I need you. You receive Jesus as he is the only Savior and you make him your Savior, 
then you've been reconciled to God. You belong to him, he to you. And if you are a Christian, you have a great high priest. You have Christ, which means you have so much. And it is so important to know what is yours. And the writer of the Hebrews wants to remind his readers and God wants to remind us this morning what is ours. If you haven't come to Christ, you can do that this morning in order to have this great high priest and everything that comes along with him. So it's so important to know what's yours. It's the same kind of thought in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And then he enumerates them. Or, um, <laughs> is there an echo? Um, so, or like Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. And then he enumerates those blessings to remind himself all that's his because God is his, because he has God, all right? So what do we have? We have this great high priest. It's emphatic in the original language. So Hebrews is intent on making sure we know all that we have, all that's ours, if we have Christ, if Christ is ours. So I want you to just see this theme. I'll real quickly go through a couple different passages, but be on the lookout for what we have, this language of having this, that, or the other thing. So Hebrews 6, 18, you can follow along probably just up here. It'll be easier than flipping probably. Um, Hebrews six eighteen, By two unchangeable things, God's promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is what God wants us to have. This is what God has given to us. He wants us to have strong encouragement. He's given us hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. Same point. Needs to be driven home. This is the high priest that we have. The one who's made atonement for us once for all. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Hebrews 10, 19. Dave read it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, that's a blood-bought gift. We can have confidence to enter God's presence by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 34. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which, which has a great reward. So hanging in there, holding fast all the way to the end, has a great reward. And you have a better possession and an abiding one. One more, Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what that literally says is we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Okay, so... It's a blessing that we have all these people who've gone before us, who've had similar struggles, and they made it. And we can hear them cheering us on, as it were, saying, keep going. You can make it. So again, these are all things that we have. There's more, but you get the point. The point is we're not spiritual paupers. I mean, obviously, we come to the table bankrupt. All we bring to the table is sin. 
You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. But 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich, spiritually rich, riches of mercy and grace and help and strength and love and encouragement. It's all ours. We need to know, we need to be reminded of what we have, the resources that are ours in Christ. So if you remember, our first Advent passage was Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, and it focuses on the transcendent greatness of Jesus. He's the heir of all things. He's the one through whom the Father created the world. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the entire universe by his powerful word. And then that passage ended with, verse 3, after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's another way of saying what we find in our passage, he passed through the heavens. So after he did the work of atonement, on earth, he passed through the heavens and sat down triumphantly at the Father's right hand. He is the great high priest. Hebrews 9.24 says the same thing. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, just kind of an earthly temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's our intercessor. He is interceding for us at the Father's right hand, like it says in chapter 7 of Hebrews. So since we have such a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, he sat down, the work is done, it is finished. Jesus, the Son of God, his earthly name, Jesus, draws attention to his humanity. So he's high and he's lowly. Look at all that you have. His greatness and his goodness. It's all yours. All that greatness is ours. It's for us. He's for us. All that goodness and grace and hum like humble service is ours. It's for us. He is for us. So there is a real and a great high priest in the ultimate holy place. He's there on our behalf as our great high priest. So here's the point. The greatness of Jesus, the glory of Jesus is like high quality protein for your faith muscles like steak and egg burrito, baby, or some lemon, lemon pepper salmon or some like savory lentil soup for your soul so that your grip strength can grow so that you can hold fast. Point number two, since we have this great high priest, let us hold fast. Verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. Okay, we need spiritual grip strength in order to hold fast. So this is, a, again, important theme in the book of Hebrews. We're only looking at five different passages in Hebrews, so I'm just going to point out some of the other places where this theme comes up, okay? It's an important theme in the book. It needs to be an important theme in our lives as well. So Hebrews 3, 6 I think they'll be up here as well if you want to follow along that way. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. He's building a spiritual house. 
temple because we all worship God. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Hebrews 6.18. We read this before, but did you notice? We have fled for refuge and God made these promises and this oath so that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Or Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So let us hold fast our confession. What is that? What's our confession? What's our confession of belief, right? I believe it's like saying the Apostles' Creed, but not just lip service. It's your whole life, amen, to the truths and promises of the gospel. That's our confession. Hold fast to that. To drift away from Jesus, to throw up your hands, is the opposite of holding fast. Your confession. And there's a lot of stuff that can weaken our grip, right? A lot of stuff that can kind of take the wind out of our sails. I mean, what kinds of things in your life have, have, have caused your like spiritual shoulders to slump? and caused you to become defeated or stuck. I was talking to somebody this week, seeing scandal after scandal in the church and some in churches that he was at. Pastor having an affair with somebody in the, in the congregation, she gets pregnant, it's just a bunch of people leave, but then he remains on as the pastor, just like this. And that was one of a series that this guy had seen. That stuff can take the wind out of your sails, weaken your grip. Unanswered prayer. Have you prayed about something, especially repeatedly? Doesn't seem like the Lord's answering and it's just like, could be your own repeated sin, repeated failures and you're just so sick and tired of yourself and it doesn't seem like God's gonna help and deliver you so you just, could be because you were sinned against, let down by people, maybe especially people who claim to be Christians. Sometimes just it wears, wears you down like things just have not turned out as I'd hoped. Nowhere near what I'd hoped. So you start to slow up, shoulder slump, you give up, you give in. You stop running, you start coasting. too much weight. Listen, Adam Kramer, you know, it's a pretty fit dude. You have a picture of him? He's like a model, just in case you guys didn't know that. Um, Lululemon. Yeah, it's him. Um, I know you're surprised. So anyway, pretty strong, fit guy, right? I bet he could do that 100-second challenge on a, on a, uh, without even practicing. But what if Greg Bauman, like koala bears on the back of him, <laughs> is he going to be able to hold for 100 seconds? I don't think so. So it's funny, but therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also throw off the weights, things that slow us down, that hinder us, and the sin that so easily entangles 
so that we can run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. So it can be stuff that just kind of weighs us down. We can cast our cares on the Lord. He cares for us. We can roll those burdens onto him. If it's sin, we can lay that aside, cast it off, and cling to Jesus for strength and help. It can be that we're really weak, right? Well, this passage is testimonial along with dozens of other passages that we can actually grow in strength. If, if we just don't do anything, of course our muscles are gonna atrophy. Even Adam, if he stopped exercising, eventually, it would take a long time, I'd probably beat him at arm wrestling. So what are those things that are weighing you down, weakening you, the opposite of holding fast our confession is to give way rather than fight unbelief and hardness of heart. If you don't fight those things, you will fall away. So don't yield to the deceitfulness of sin. That's chapter three. Don't allow the hardness of heart to set in. Don't shrink back in unbelief or cynicism. Don't let that fester. Don't let doubt grip your soul and eat away at your confidence in Jesus. Don't run from him, run to him. Don't drift from depending on Jesus. Otherwise, you will have no strength for your soul to hold fast and run. If we just look at the stuff that's all around us, that's happened to us, that's happening out there, if we fix our eyes on those things, of course we're gonna be totally depressed and defeated and we're gonna throw up our hands and give up. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus, we are going to be enabled to run the race that's set before us. Hebrews 12, 15 says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. There is grace. There is strength to be able to Put your shoulders back and run. Don't give up. Don't give in. Hang on. Hold fast your confession. Don't let go. Don't throw away your confidence. We have need of endurance, chapter 10. We actually need to make it to the finish line. Perseverance of the saints means we actually need to persevere, saints. I mean, thank the Lord we're not the first to walk this trail or run this course. Hebrews 11 is filled with examples of people who had really messed up, messy, up and down lives, and they made it. Isn't that encouraging? Because our lives are messy and up and down. So thankfully, we're not the first people kind of bivouacking through the tangle of woods. No. Other people have gone before us and... Even more importantly, we have a captain who blazed the trail and he's with us and we can fix our eyes on him the whole way home. He is what we have. So hold on, saints, and don't give up. So the writer of the Hebrews wants to give our soul, our faith, 
grip strength muscles, some high quality protein. And we need exercise too, right? To improve our spiritual grip strength, to enable us to persevere. So point number three, we have a sympathetic high priest. More of what we have. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, verse 15, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So more of what we have comes by way of what we don't have. We don't have an unsympathetic high priest. You know, aloof and distant The fact that he is high and exalted like chapter one or that he's this great high priest that's seated at the right hand of the father doesn't mean he's too removed from us to help. He's the perfect mediator. He's the perfect blend of exalted power and humble nearness of toughness and power and tenderness and mercy. This isn't just some cheap feeling from a distance like, oh, it must be so hard. He doesn't just try to help from outside like a wealthy suburbanite, you know, doing a one-day food distribution in the inner city and then back to safety and comfort, not really feeling the burden and the pressure and the struggle of life for the people that he served. No, he came down. He dwelt with us. He entered in. He knows our weaknesses from the inside. I mean, we've heard this a lot of times. Just stop and think about this. God didn't have flesh before the incarnation. The eternal God took on flesh and blood so that he could sympathize with us from the inside. Like, we'll never come to the bottom of that. Like, really grasp the glory and the mind-boggling greatness and sweetness of that. How's that even possible? He knows our weaknesses from the inside. Word for weakness here is pretty broad, which is wonderful. (coughs) Most likely covers the full range of suffering due to life in a fallen world, susceptibility to sin, pressures and persecutions because of being a Christian. But perhaps especially in view, is the moral, spiritual weakness that comes on the race of faith that we are prone to because we get weary and we want to just give up. He made, I mean, think about the Garden of Gethsemane. At at one level, he did not want to go all the way to the end. So, He made our weaknesses and suffering and temptation his own. God, the Son, took on flesh in order to do that for us. He is not unable to sympathize. He is able to sympathize. We saw it last week, verse 18 of chapter 2. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to deal gently. He's able to save to the uttermost, chapter 7. He's able to perfect our consciences. All this ability of Jesus is being like put out there for us in the book of Hebrews. Look for it if you're reading the book. He's able, he's able, he's able. He is omnipotently and wonderfully able to help us helpless and unable people. He's been tempted as we are. 
Let's just stop for a second. Do you believe that? I mean, I imagine some of us are like, well, hold on a second. I mean, he only lived to be 33. There are some temptations in particular in midlife. There are some temptations in old age. He was not a woman. On and on and on. Okay, the point is not in some sort of pedantic way as if, you know, God's not nuanced enough to anticipate these objections. The point is he entered fully into human experience. And at the root level, he experienced all the temptation that humanity experiences, that humans experience under the sun. Let me just, and, and also, let me just say this. Actually, I think the tables need to be turned. He experienced temptation in a way that no one else has. It's not just that, you know, you might think, well, I'm not sure if he experienced this. So his sympathy is less than maybe. No. When things got tough, he could not, like, fall back with the S, you know, son of God on his chest. It wasn't easier for Jesus because he was fully God. He experienced full humanity with all of its temptations and trials. The only difference is that he never gave in, that he never sinned. So let me just give you a few quotes that have helped me over the years with understanding how Jesus has been truly tempted as we are. C.S. Lewis first, he writes this, a silly idea, this is from Mere Christianity, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. Wayne Grudem. Some of you are taking the Sistheo class and using his book um, as the class textbook. In his Systematic Theology, he writes this, were the temptations real then? Jesus' temptations. Many theologians have pointed out that only he who successfully resists a temptation to the end most fully feels the force of that temptation. Just as a champion weightlifter who successfully lifts and holds overhead the heaviest weight in the contest feels the force of it more fully than one who attempts to lift it and drops it. So any Christian who has successfully faced a temptation to the end knows that it's that that is far more difficult than giving into it at once. So it was with Jesus. Every temptation he faced, he faced to the end and triumphed, triumphed over it. The temptations were real even though he did not give into them. In fact, they were most real because he did not give into them. One more. F.F. Bruce comments. Such endurance involves more, not less, than ordinary human suffering. Sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. And then let me just add this. I was thinking of this this week. Just take a minute to consider Jesus' sensitivity to sin and temptation compared to ours. We are all dull 
like dull to, unaware of so much of what is wrong with us. I mean, thankfully, God doesn't show us all of our sin all at once, right? I mean, it would just totally overwhelm us. He oftentimes just works at one or two things at a time. We get used to it. We're dull to it. So here, just a couple silly examples, but it'll make the point. Have you ever had a situation where, you know, some like crass, debauched lyrics in some music you listen to as a teenager? Sorry, I'm kind of creating a category here of who's going to like relate to me on this one, but um, then you listen to the words as an adult, like with your kids, and you're like, whoa, didn't know that was in there. Like all of a sudden you're sensitized to it, you were were previously not so. Um, Or like, what is it like to be a dog in this world? I mean, there are things that we really can't hear and don't bother us, but like they've got this like super crazy hearing and, or the smell thing, you know? I mean, I'm a little sensitive to perfume and, you know, I'm not trying to make any of you feel self-conscious around me, but like, um, especially if it's really strong, imagine what that's like for a dog. I don't know what that's like for a dog or a bear because bears have even stronger sense of smell than a dog. Anyway, or... One more illustration, I think. Um, And again, all these break down at a certain level, but you get the idea. So we bought this electronic lighter recently. Um, (laughs) And so you don't have to actually like fill it up with juice, like butane or whatever. It's just like plug it in and then it works for us. So ready? Here we go. Leela, is that bothering you? Okay, see? Um, Bill, is it bothering you? No, okay. Beth and I can't hear the nails on the chalkboard thing that our kids are like, shut it off, shut it off, shut it off. Because there's some high-pitched squeal. And I'm not talking about the you know, that happens just in here. I don't know. I can't hear it. Well, that's what we are like. And what if you have perfect, never sinned sensitivity to sin and temptation? What's that like? So don't write off the sympathy of Jesus, okay? So he was fully human. He is actually fully human. That's for another day. There is human flesh in heaven. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So Jesus is not cold and clinical. He's not aloof and detached and mechanical in the way that he relates to us. He is warmly sympathetic and he gets us. He knows He cares. He's been here. Okay, so like, let me just put another illustration on this. So Jackie Robinson started for the Brooklyn Dodgers in April of 1947. So if you know anything about the story, he endured cruel, horribly unjust treatment. Um, first black player to play in major leagues. But he blazed the trail for future black baseball players because of what he endured. So, little kind of thought experiment here. Imagine a black baseball player on a major league baseball team in the South, let's say, especially, but it could be anywhere, sadly, in the late 50s. Segregation was 
not federally outlawed until 1964. So that guy might have a white friend on the team who's stuck by him, and this black player is comfortable opening up about how hard things are, but if that white player tries to sympathize with him, it's only gonna mean so much. He's sympathizing from the outside. I mean, good to have an ally, but now what if that white player tries to say, I get it, but you just need to try to give him advice. You can imagine that player, man, you don't get it. But if that black player ran into Jackie Robinson, you can imagine Robinson would be sympathetic. But if Robinson gave that player some advice, it's going to hit in a totally different way. He had been there. He had blazed the trail. In fact, he took the brunt of it. And then if he gave some advice, that imperative was totally different coming from the mouth of someone who could truly sympathize. That's just a little candle picture of what Jesus can do with us. So consider that as you consider the imperative to hold fast your confession and then second, to draw near. Verse 16, point number four. Let us then, because of what we have, with confidence, because we've got this sympathetic high priest, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For strength to hold fast, grip strength. So let us draw near with confidence. You can expect, Christian, to receive mercy and grace to help. Timely help to meet your needs. So that you have a firmer hold, so that you can endure. So on account of what we have, who we have, let's draw near with confidence. I like these quotes by N.T. Wright. I don't like everything he writes, but these are some good ones here to just comment on what's being said here. So when we come to pray to the Heavenly Father, we are not shouting across a great gulf. We are not trying to catch the attention of someone who has little or no concern for us. We may and must come boldly and confidently. This isn't arrogance or presumption. Indeed, if we understand who Jesus is, what he's done and what he's still doing on our behalf, the real arrogance would be to refuse to accept his offer of standing before the Father on our behalf, to imagine that we had to bypass him and try to do it all ourselves. That would be arrogant. So do you see how this confidence is a result? Like obeying this imperative to confidently draw near is a result of knowing who we have, who we are approaching, what is ours in Christ. This sympathetic Savior sits at the Father's right hand. He is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25. It is our sympathetic great high priest who has been there. He knows our frame and weaknesses and the race that we need to run. He's been here. He blazed the trail. So, Listen, brother and sister, you don't need to keep your distance. Don't shrink back. Don't cower in the corner. Don't orbit at a safe distance. Draw near. 
Let's draw near. Why? To receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy for our failures. Mercy for our wanderings. That's kind of yesterday's failures, right? Meeting our weakness, our sin, like all of that. He's merciful so we can come with confidence to receive mercy even though we've failed, even though we've sinned. And then grace to strengthen our weak knees and run the race. Grace for strong grip strength to hold fast our confession from today forward to get back in the race and run the race that's set before us with endurance. So that's mercy for yesterday's failures, grace for today's race, and to hold fast our confession firm to the end. So all of this to help in time of need. God wants to help you. I mean, isn't this, there's so much glory in this book. God wants to help us. And yet we still try to just drive the car without gas. You know, running independently. You know, like, and then the car runs out of gas and we're like, oh, hate this stuff, you know. And instead of like going to the gas station and filling up, spiritually speaking, we start pushing the car because we got to get there. Why are we trying to run on our own steam? Draw near to the throne of grace so that you have grace to run the race. Or we screw up and then we think we can't come. Why did he come in the first place? He's a merciful high priest. He says, come with confidence to receive mercy. Why would you need mercy? Because you screwed up and you're a failure. So come with confidence because he's a merciful, sympathetic high priest. So, okay, we're prone to wander, lose our grip. Yeah, we need to hold fast. Yeah, we need to be, we need all kinds of things. Where are you going to get those things? Draw near and you can do it with confidence. There is like some serious steak and eggs, salmon, whatever your thing is with protein, like waiting for us, waiting for our souls so that we are strengthened. It is a wonder. Don't let this kind of escape your notice. It is a wonder that we approach with confidence the throne of, I mean, if you know your own heart, if you know your sin, like me, what should that throne be? It should be throne of judgment total trouble. Throne of condemnation. That's what we deserve. It's a throne of grace. Why? Because of Jesus, the great high priest, sympathetic high priest. We come to a throne of grace. It's like the fountainhead of grace. Come and drink. Come on. Fill up on mercy and grace (coughs) to help you run the race. So, See the logic of this? I mean, it's a short little passage, right? But the logic is the imperatives, hold fast, draw near, are empowered, are enabled, are driven by the resources that are ours because of Jesus, because of who he is and what he's done. You see what you have, and then you can hold fast and you can run. So finally, where's your confidence? Point five. Again, let's just be honest with ourselves. Like, where is my confidence on a daily basis? Where do I find resources for the race that's set before me? Everybody's running a race. It's set before you. You might not like it. Where's the resources to run it? 
Is your confidence in yourself? Is it in your job, your position, your usefulness, your success? Is it in your bank account, your financial security? Or you can flip any of these on their head. Like the lack thereof is what, you know, makes you kind of lose your mind. Is your confidence in your performance as a responsible, fairly put together citizen? And you're looking down on other people and whatever else. Is it your religious performance? Is that where your confidence is? If we are not regularly drawing near for the mercy and grace to help us in our time of need, we are out of touch with reality, out of touch with our need, and we're in danger of drifting. We've got to hold fast our confession, hold fast to Jesus, our sympathetic Savior. We need to know who we have, what we have, because the glory and grace of Jesus is like super-powered protein for our soul's grip. And not only grip to hold fast, but also for our legs to run the race. So why would you not want to be close to the throne of grace? Why would you not? Why would we not want to draw near? I mean, certainly we can feel unworthy. We can fear drawing near. But this whole section, in fact, this whole book is aimed at helping us overcome our hesitations and misguided flight and fight Impulses. Instead, those fight or flight impulses should lead us right to the throne of grace where the grace and mercy and help is to be found. So, brothers and sisters, draw near. Prayerlessness is arrogance. It's a declaration of independence. You can't confess, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, and then not pray. When we don't draw near, we drift. When we don't draw near, we're saying, I don't need you. I can do it on my own. So cling to him. He will hold us fast. Our grip is often weak. Our grip strength it needs to grow, be maintained. But over it all, underneath it all, around it all, don't forget, he will hold me fast. His grip strength is omnipotent. Any amens to that? His grip strength is omnipotent. So all praise be to the sovereign and sympathetic Savior who has us. Let's pray and then we're going to sing before we're dismissed. Lord, you know where each and every person is at even better than we know ourselves. And I pray that you would just cut through all the haze and noise and confusion and just help us see our need and help us see that you love to meet needs and you are so willing and so able and may we just all run to you so that we can run after you all the way home. In Jesus' name, amen.